Would you open God's precious holy word to 2 Chronicles 7? We'll also be in 1 Kings 8. Continuing the story of the dedication of the temple and the inauguration of the worship with all of the people there. So it's been built, it's been organized, and everything is ready. Solomon, you may recall, has just completed his prayer, his prayer of dedication. So here are all these uh, Israelites and the leaders of tribes and the princes of the people, of course, the priesthood and uh, the king, his household. Big crowd, big, big worship service as Solomon has completed the prayer of dedication. So that brings us here to this part of the scriptures uh, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Fire from Yahweh consumes the sacrifices. So the, you know, the question is, does, does Yahweh accept what's done? You go back to the book of Exodus and you have the pillar of fire, for example, and the tabernacle that traveled with the people and the people knew that uh, in a visible sense, Yahweh was with his people. Well, now they're permanently in the land. This is a, it's supposed to be a permanent temple. And after the prayer of dedication, all of the wonderful points that Solomon made in his prayer yeah, and all of these, this immense show of, uh, of, of ritual and sacrifice, Yahweh puts his stamp of approval on what's happening. So beginning in verse one, and when Solomon finished praying and the, and the fire descended from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, the glory of Yahweh filled the house. The glory. <clears throat> now that's an interesting, that's an interesting word. Uh, it speaks of the, uh, the essence of character. Um, the, um, the reputation. It is, it is the, it is the presence of a person and that presence uh, emanates the, the power of the attributes of that person. Well, of course, <laughs> there's no greater person than Yahweh. So in this visible sense, fire comes down and then there's glory. Glory of Yahweh filled the house. It is something that is visible uh, it is something that um, one would have to honor and respect. It speaks of the dignity of the presence of Yahweh. And apparently uh, has, a, has a physicality about it that, that prevents someone from approaching it too closely because of verse two. And the priests could not enter the house of Yahweh 
because the glory of Yahweh filled the house of Yahweh. Now this is obviously Yahweh saying, this is my temple. This is where my people will perform the required rituals of the law and I accept this temple as the station, the place where they may worship me according to my law and there we will come together. It's about what's being said. So the, so the glory of Yahweh is a, is a physical presence that uh, fills the, the house, fills the temple and the people then know that Yahweh is present. The essence of Yahweh is then in his prayer, Solomon had mentioned that a house, a structure, a man-made structure in no way could contain the presence of God. But this was built to offer before Yahweh a place where in, in, the, uh, in the illustrative sense, Yahweh could make his presence known to his people and they would know now, they would know that they could come and they were as close to Yahweh as they could be when they would come and worship and worship here is prayer and the appropriate way to deal with relationship. And that relationship has to start with a confession of sin and the offering of a sacrifice so that, uh, so that the people could be uh, forgiven and could be, on a, could be placed on a plane that would make them acceptable in the sight of Yahweh. <coughs> you got here just just in the nick of time. Thank you. You're welcome. Snap. Okay. Pardon me while I refresh myself. Used to watch Bear Bryant drink that Coca-Cola and eat those Lay's potato chips and Always made me want some. <laughs> and all the sons of Israel saw the descent of the fire and the glory of Yahweh on the house. Now understand, there was a massive presence of Israel. It's not to say that the entire complete whole nation is there, but a whole bunch of them are, especially represented by leaders strategically for this dedication uh, of the temple. And the glory of Yahweh, and they kneeled on their faces to the ground on the floor, prostrated themselves and said, give thanks to Yahweh for he is good for his loving kindness is eternal. Now there's the appeal. The, the root of that word is chesed. Um, and it could be translated mercy, loving kindness, but it speaks of the covenant love of God. It comes from God to his people. It can't go the other way. 
You can't extend it from where we are to where he is. He has to come to us. And so there's that word, his loving kindness. In this case, it is specifically for Israel, his people in the Old Testament. Now we've seen and we will continue to see how there is an allowance for people who are not Israelites to come and be a part of this worship. So um, that's, uh, that's not to say that the rest of the world is unwelcome here, but it is to say that according to divine instruction, God accepts people on his terms and he does it from, uh, from within himself. So for he is good and his loving kindness is eternal. Now there are more sacrifices and here we'll pick up with first Kings where we left off last time in the parallels, uh, in the parallel presentation of the subject matter at hand, Solomon and the people. Now, if you think of this, I mean, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands. We, we've, we've seen in the earlier history, as we study numbers, how many males there are to go to war. And that was over 600,000. Now, how many people are, well, you know, quite a few people here and their representatives, and I'm sure as many people as could possibly be there were there for this dedication. Now, they're going to offer more sacrifices. Think about this. Thousands, thousands of people offering thousands and thousands of offerings. There were five, if you remember in Leviticus, there were five sacrifices that were made and uh, most of them required an animal of some kind. So the people, I mean, just suppose one person feels compelled to make a, a sacrifice for two or three. Of course, the burnt offering would be the first thing that everybody would offer. And then, of course, there would be uh, sin offering and guilt offering and the, the, the meal offering, the peace offering. In a time of fellowship, everybody probably would have wanted, wanted to make a peace offering, an offering of fellowship. So you can imagine what this would have been like. I mean, you talk about a gridlock. Here's the brazen altar. It's quite large. It would have maybe fit in the center part of this, of this area here. And it was, it was high and the priests would offer the sacrifices on the grate of the top of the brass or brazen or copper altar. And that thing stayed busy, but now you're talking about thousands, thousands, thousands of, of sacrifices that are being brought by the people just to give you a mental picture of this worship. This is in that day, you see that worship reflects the heart of the people. They're getting a fresh start here. They are, they are getting a fresh start unlike they've had since the Exodus. Brand new temple, able to get off on the right foot and make it right. 
and continued to keep it right with God under the Old Testament uh, culture and economy. So the people offer their sacrifices here. And the king and all the people were slaughtering sacrifices before Yahweh. King Solomon slaughtered the sacrifices of cattle, 22,000 and sheep, 120,000. And they dedicated the house of Elohim, the king and all the people. That's a lot of animals, isn't it? Uh, the blood that must have flowed uh, with the slaughtering of these sacrifices. And the priests were standing on their watches. And the Levites with the instruments of the song of Yahweh, which King David had made to give thanks to Yahweh for his loving kindness is eternal. With David's praise in their hand and the priests were sounding the trumpets opposite them and all of Israel were standing. Solomon consecrated the interior of the court that was before the house of Yahweh for there he offered up the burnt offerings and the fats of the peace offerings for the copper altar that Solomon had made could not contain the burnt offerings, the meal offerings and the fats. So as much, as much as they could, they would improvise, but you see that the altar wasn't big enough to contain all of the offerings that were being made. Now here's what first Kings says about this. And the king and all of Israel with him slaughtered sacrifices before Yahweh and Solomon slaughtered the peace offerings that he slaughtered to Yahweh, 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. With this, the king and all the children of Israel, sons of Israel, inaugurated the temple of Yahweh. So this is how it gets started. It gets started. Okay. All right. So, so, you know, what, what's, uh, what are what are the what are the offerings here? Well, the peace offering, of course, the burnt offering, was something that had to be done day and night, and that was uh, that was to acknowledge that I'm my my nature is sinful, and I know that I can only stand here by your grace, and so this sacrifice acknowledges that and. It also acknowledges my desire to lead a devoted life and to commit my life to service of Yahweh and to the worship of Yahweh, knowing that I am one of Yahweh's people. That's the, the sort of like the burnt offering. The peace offering is exactly what it says, but it's, it's an offering of fellowship as well uh, to know now that you can actually be at peace with Yahweh and Therefore, walk in fellowship with him. So this is, this is how the people are approaching and how King Solomon leading the people to approach Yahweh on this time of dedication. So when this time of dedication is over, you think, well, okay, the entire nation has acknowledged the importance of the relationship that exists between Yahweh and his people and then try to walk in the acceptable way within that relationship. So, so this, is, this is what it's all about here. On that day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was before the temple of Yahweh. For there he offered the burnt offerings and the meal offerings and the fat of the peace offerings. For the copper altar that was before Yahweh was too small to contain the burnt offerings and the meal offerings and the fat of uh, the peace offerings. So those, those are the parallel accounts 
of what happens to inaugurate uh, this part of the activity. Now we go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, and we look at the part along with 1 Kings 8, 65 through 66, the Feast of Tabernacles. And Solomon observed the feast at that time seven days, and all of Israel with him, a very great assemblage from the entrance of Hamat to the brook of Egypt. And they made on the eighth day a solemn gathering for the inauguration of the altar and made, uh, and they made seven days and the feast seven days. And on the 23rd day of the seventh month, he dismissed the people to their homes, rejoicing and delighted of heart for all of the goodness that Yahweh had wrought for David, for Solomon and for Israel, his people. Okay, here's how first Kings gives the account in chapter eight. Now Solomon observed the feast at that time and all of Israel with him, a great assemblage from the entrance of Hamat to the brook of Egypt before Yahweh Elohini, the Lord, the Lord their God, the Lord our God, seven days and seven nights, totaling 14 days. And on the eighth day, he dismissed the people and they blessed the king and went to their homes rejoicing and delighted of heart for all the goodness that Yahweh had wrought for David, his servant, and for Israel, his people. Okay, so this has been a this has been a very spiritual and emotional experience for all the people who were there. Up until this point, nothing like this with regard to worship had ever been seen, I don't think, in the life of the nation of Israel. Now, of course, there was Passover back in, back in Egypt. That was different than, than this. That was, a, that was a different experience so here, all of the people are gathered in the, in the dedication of this temple. And there is complete and wholesale, if that's the right word, acknowledgement of the importance of the personal relationship that God's people have with God. Now, for that to be a proper relationship that uh, has to entail from the worshiper and acknowledgement of sin and in acknowledging sin and offering the sacrifice and acknowledgement of the grace of God, the willingness of God to accept the worshiper into his presence and to continue the, the loving kindness, the, chesed, the, uh, the covenant love that God gives forth to his people. David in the Psalms refers to that covenant love quite a bit, the mercy or the loving kindness or covenant love of God. And David appeals to it quite often in his Psalms, <clears throat> which is namely, God is the one who started the relationship and God is the one who says it's by my covenant love, my mercy, my compassion, whatever. So once God has established it, it's never wrong to appeal to that, that loving kindness of God. I appeal to it. I've, I'm in a mess. But you established something from where you are to where I am, and I'm going to appeal to it. You're the one who established it. And now I appeal to it. So you have, you have something of that same thought here. As, as we consider that word uh, that's used in this part of the life of Israel as they dedicate uh, the temple here. 
So now, uh, as it says here, the people were dismissed. They all go home rejoicing and delighted, and they are full. They're just full of, of what has happened. Uh, now, continuing here on the, the Feast of uh, Tabernacles, Solomon completed the house of Yahweh and the king's palace. Whatever entered Solomon's mind to make in the house of Yahweh and in his palace, he succeeded. And Yahweh appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I've heard your prayer. I've chosen this place for myself for a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heaven and there be no rain, and if I command locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence upon my people and my people. Here it is. You've heard this, Second Chronicles chapter 7. And my people, of course, this is all part of the dedication of the temple. And my people who are, who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my presence and repent of their evil ways. I shall hear from heaven where I am and forgive their sin and heal their land. If we dissect this verse a little bit and we, we reverse what's being said, what God is saying is he sends these things. If we go back here, there we go. To shut up heaven, no rain. That means that the food supply will suffer. The, the economy will suffer. The people will suffer. Locusts devour the land, so they lose their crops. Uh, pestilence, which would be famine and sickness that come upon the people. And of course, famine and sickness follows the loss of food and, uh, and the ability to eat and feed yourself. So when that happens, then here's what is expected. It's, it's not like, it's not like the Lord thinks that the people will never, ever sin again. Of course they will. But there's always a way out for the people of God. My people called by my name. Humble themselves, pray, seek my presence. Repent of their evil ways. I shall hear from heaven. No, no, take this part. Forgive their sin and heal their land. Part of the judgment of God is upon the land. When the land suffers, the people suffer. Now this was, while that happens uh, across time, I suppose, this is exclusive here to the nation of Israel because the covenant of Yahweh to Israel cannot be seen as something that, that doesn't include the land. It always includes the land. God gives to them a place where they can live and there he will bless them in that land and he will bless the land while they are in it. One of the, one of the most amazing things of, of uh, the modern era would be how, and it's recorded in history uh, by, by film and photograph and every other kind of way. When you look at the land of, the so-called land of Palestine before Israel becomes a nation pre-1948, 
you have a desolate place. Nothing is growing. There's just, just it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not friendly for people to live in until Israel comes back into the land. The land begins to flourish. I experienced that personally as a, uh, in my first time to the, at, to the Holy Land when I was 19. One of the things our tour guide did was to show us a, a slide presentation as we stood in the presence of a, of a place where there were some hills and, and all, but it was just, it was just flourishing. It was blossoming. It just had all kind of crops and flowers and fruit trees. And same picture taken some 40 years earlier showed nothing but just a desert, nothing there. And it was the presence of God's people. And he showed, he showed us, and how much more now is it than then? The people there are prosperous. They're very prosperous today. They're the, the nation of Israel today is one of the strongest economies in the world uh, because of uh, their ability, uh, for example, to produce uh, medical products and, and uh, the natural gas that has been discovered there. So anyway, the, the, the land prospers when the people prosper in their relationship to Yahweh. When they sin... The land will suffer, therefore the people will suffer. So this is why he always says, forgive their sin, heal their land. They are utterly dependent upon this land before Yahweh because that's part of the covenant. Now my eyes will be open to you and my ears attentive to the prayer of this place. And now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name be there forever and my eyes and heart will be there at all times. Now this is Yahweh declaring this to his people. As for you, if you walk before me, now remember the conditions that are set by Yahweh. If you walk before me as your father David walked and do according to all that I commanded you and you keep my statutes and my ordinances, I shall set up the throne of your kingdom as I decreed to your father David saying, you shall never lack a man ruling in Israel. But if you revert and forsake my statutes and commandments, which I placed before you, and you go and worship strange gods and prostrate yourselves to them, I shall uproot them from upon my land, which I gave them and this house, which I have consecrated for my name, I shall cast from before me and I shall make it a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. And this house, which was exalted every passerby, uh, will be astounded and they will say, why has Yahweh done this to this land and to this temple? And they will be told because they forsook Yahweh, the God of their forefathers, who took them out of the land of Egypt and they adopted strange gods and prostrated themselves to them and worshiped them. Therefore, he brought upon them all this evil. Now in closing, here is how to go into the next chapter, First Kings. Here's how the writer to the to First Kings presents the same thing. It was and it was when Solomon had finished building the temple of Yahweh, the king's palace, and all that Solomon's desire that he wished to make. Okay, I, I don't think I talked about that earlier in the other account in Chronicles, but uh, Solomon was a builder. He was an inventor. We get all of this from Ecclesiastes. He was. Everything he did, he did well, and it was a thing of, of beauty, uh, and it worked well. Whenever Solomon 
became involved. So this, is, this was his job. Not only was he the king of the people, uh, but he was a developer. He was a builder. So it wasn't just, although the temple was, I'm sure, the, the crown of his projects, and then the next thing would have been his palace. His palace was much bigger than the temple, but it didn't have the enrichment that the temple had. And so it said whatever he wanted to do, he did. And uh, it, was, it was by his hand and by his wisdom uh, and talent that uh, Jerusalem, for example, became such a glorious and wonderful city. Yahweh appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him in Gibeon. Yahweh spoke to him, I have heard your prayer and your petition, which you have petitioned before me. I have consecrated this temple, which you have built to place my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart shall be there at all times. As for you, if you go before me as David, your father went wholeheartedly and with uprightness to do in accordance with all that I've commanded you, and you will keep my statutes and laws, I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, as I have spoken to David your father, saying, A man will not fail you upon the throne of Israel. But if you and your children turn away from following me, and you will not adhere to my commandments and my statutes, which I have placed before you, but you go and worship other gods and bow before them, then I will cut Israel off from the land which I have given to them, and this house which I have made sacrosanct for my name. And I will dismiss from my presence in Israel shall be for a proverb and a byword among all nations. And this temple, which is exalted, shall become forlorn. Every passerby shall be astounded and will hiss. And they will say, why has Yahweh done this to this country and to, or this land, you could say, and to this temple? They will be told because they abandoned Yahweh Elohim, Elohim they, their, their God, who had delivered their forefathers out of the land of Egypt and took hold of other gods and bowed to them and served them. Therefore, has Yahweh brought all of this retribution upon them? Now, Solomon's going to make a mess of things in, in, as we further the study. But it's not like he wasn't warned. And it's not like he wasn't told what would happen. It's interesting when, when, we, when we finally get to that, we'll get, be getting to that part and study how, how Solomon just kind of went bananas in going after other gods and so forth because of the women that he surrounded himself with. They, they, in many ways, he broke the law of Yahweh in bringing those wives and concubines in and they led him astray, but he had the strongest warning from Yahweh here. So there's no excuse as far as how Solomon lived his life. But if you study Ecclesiastes, I've told you this many times. The Song of Solomon was written by Solomon when he was a very young man and he was in love with the love of his life. Proverbs were written in the middle part of his life when he was really developing uh, the, the nation and people came to him for this wisdom. But then he's an old wasted man 
when he writes Ecclesiastes. And he, he writes of his regret. And he, he writes of how emaciated he has become because of the sin that came into his life. And he draws that conclusion at the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes. This, this is the whole duty of man. To honor God and obey his word. That's about what he says there. This is the whole duty of man. And of course he failed in that duty. And the whole nation then failed because of Solomon. In the time of Solomon's son, the nation splits. It's torn in half. becomes two kingdoms instead of one. And then both kingdoms spiral downward just in a few decades, just some decades it takes. First, the northern kingdom of Israel collapses, and then finally the southern kingdom of Judah. The Assyrians defeat Israel. The Babylonians come in and take Israel as captive. And it all goes back to how Yahweh had warned and the people had forsaken what Yahweh had said. We'll stop there and we'll have our uh, deacon prayer time.